Well, good evening again to you all. Good to be with you this, uh, this Sunday and to be able to share the word and renew fellowship with different ones. And it's been good to do that and spend a little bit of time. I had lunch with the young guys today, and that's good. They invited me, an old guy, to have lunch with the young guys, and so that was kind of nice. Does that happen to you, Ron, once in a while? No. <laughs> so, I mean, I felt honored. That was great. Some, one of the older guys was going to take me out for lunch, but then the young guys invited me. So, well, very good. We're going to ask you to take. Yeah, what's that? Uh, well, when you get to that point, you know. That's all I can say. It, it sort of, it just kind of hits you. Um. <laughs> Let's take our Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, Dave, you're not there yet, so no fear, no fear on that, <laughs> that area. Um, chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, we want to think about Mephibosheth tonight, and we want to think about grace, how God's grace reaches down and lifts us up and saves us and transforms us and works in our lives. And one of the great doctrines of the Bible, it has to be, one of the great truths of the Bible is the grace of of God, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here today because of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Someone has defined the grace in the New Testament that we have as God's riches at Christ's expense. But grace is one of the great, uh, great doctrines of all of the Bible, reaching down and lifting up. And we find that here in the life of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. You know, I was preaching on this a while ago, and for some reason I was saying Melchizedek. Now I can't even say Mephibosheth. <laughs> so um, Mephibosheth means man of shame. Man of shame. And we'll find out how God lifts him up and works in his life in a wonderful way. Let's, um, let's read 13 verses of chapter 9. Let's read all of those verses just to get a sense of what is happening in this chapter. Chapter 9, 2 Samuel, verse 1. And David said, "Is there any yet who are yet, are there any uh, are there yet any who is left in the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake?" And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called unto unto him, the king said unto him, "Art thou Ziba?" And he said, "Thy servant is he." And the king said, "Is there not yet any in the house of Saul that I might show kindness?" Show the kindness of God unto him. And Ziba said to the king, Jonathan has yet a son who was lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, in Lodabar. And King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emil, <clears throat> in Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come to David. He fell on his face, and he did obeisance. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan's sake and thy father, thy father's sake. And I will restore to thee all the land of Saul, thy father. And thou shalt eat at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said unto, and, and said, What is thy servant? that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am. And the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, 
And he said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him. Thou shalt bring to him the fruits that thy master's son may have fruit to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, he shall eat at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, according to all that... According to all my Lord, the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem and did eat regularly at the king's table. And he was lame on both of his feet. You know, I think this is one of the great chapters in the Old Testament of the grace of God. God's grace reaching down and lifting us up just when we need it. God not forgetting. I think the first part of this chapter is that God doesn't forget us. You know, many years ago, <clears throat> there was a man named Mel Trotter. Mel Trotter was an evangelist, but before he was an evangelist, he was an alcoholic. And uh, he was born in 1870. His father was a bartender and also an alcoholic. And he said about his father, he drank as much as he served. And as a young boy, he became an alcoholic. He was a barber. He found any job he could find. He could hardly hold a job very long. And he got married to a, a woman named Lois Fisher, Fisher. And she didn't know he was an alcoholic. And soon their life was a misery. And uh, they had a young son. The day he was born, he lost a job that he had because of alcoholism. And he would go from place to place trying to find work. He would leave the home. Sometimes they didn't have very much money. They lived in Illinois. And one day he came back home, and he found their little baby of two years old dead, freezing in a house without food, without heat. And um, I just tore him apart. And he vowed that he would never drink again. He vowed he would change his life. He would do everything he could not to get drunk again. Two hours later, he was drunk. Two hours later, he spent all the money he had. He got almost all the money he had. Got on a train to Chicago with a, a little bit of money in his pocket. It was winter time, And when he got to Chicago, he sold his shoes to buy another drink. And... He was shoeless, moneyless, and an alcoholic in Chicago. He went down to the river. He was going to commit suicide. Went down to a river, was going to throw himself into the river. And he heard music playing at the Pacific Garden Mission. It was 1897. And he went into that mission, and he heard a man named Harry Monroe, the leader of the mission, heard him preaching. In fact, when he walked through the door... Harry Monroe at the pulpit, he said, there's a man that needs Christ. <laughs> no shoes, an alcoholic. He knew right away he needed Christ. He was saved that night. And in a short period of time, he became the assistant of the Pacific Garden Mission. He could play the guitar. He could sing. And pretty soon, he became a tremendous preacher. But God lifted up that man, Mel Trotter, to become 
a born-again believer, and to have his life changed. And he would say, who would say to him, why did God care about you? Why would God lift you up? Why would God care about an alcoholic, a father who didn't care for his children, didn't care for his wife, didn't care for those around him, had a son that died? He said, I don't know. But God loved me, and he gave his son for me. Sometimes they would ask him, how do you know you're saved? He said, I know I'm saved because I was there when it happened. <laughs> and my life was changed. He said, I know I was there, and something happened, and my life was totally changed. I think of that story. I think about Mel Trotter. God lifting up someone who was, worth, in the eyes of this world, absolutely worthless. No one would give him anything. And yet God cared about him, saved him, lifted up, but transformed, transformed his life. When we come to a chapter like this, we see God's wonderful grace in the life of Mephibosheth. Turn with me back a couple of chapters. Who is Mephibosheth? Here I have a man lame on his feet, a young boy. Lame on his feet. Calls himself a dead dog, worthless. Not worthy of David's care and compassion and grace. But who is Mephibosheth? Well, Mephibosheth is a king's son. Mephibosheth is the, the last remaining relative or descendant in the house of Saul, who if Saul was king, if Saul of the line of David had not become king, Mephibosheth would have been king. Look what it says in verse 4 of chapter 4. And Jonathan, this would be the oldest son of Saul. Saul had two, three other sons. Those sons did not have children. And in Mount Gilboa, when there was a battle against the Philistines, the last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, it was a battle. Saul died, and his three sons died. One other lived, and that was Ishbosheth. He lived, and for two years he was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. But soon his general was killed, and things politically turned against him. He was assassinated in his bed. Two of his most trusted men came in and with, his, with a dagger assassinated him in his bed. And at that moment, or just before this time, the nurse of Mephibosheth, who was five years old, Verse 4 of chapter 4, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up, and they fled. And it came to pass, as they made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. You know, it's an amazing thing when you think of this man who calls himself a dead dog. Who would be concerned with a dead dog such as I am. You know, in Israel, a dog was almost worthless. Dogs tried to find food wherever they could. We take care of our dogs. They're our pets. And we try to do what we can to feed them and pet them and take care of them, give them a little dog house and uh, so forth, bring them in the house. When it's cold out, it's not cold here in Florida, but I had a dog when I was a boy. And we had a dog house, and when it was cold, I'd bring him in the house, we'd feed him. Well, not so in Israel, not so in the Middle East. A dog is worthless. A dog wasn't cared for. It would feed on scraps, find food where it could. It was kicked. It was mistreated. 
Only thing less valuable than a dog is a dead dog. And so he calls himself, who would be concerned with a dog, a dead dog such as I am? But he was a king's son. He was the grandson of King Saul. He was the son of the eldest uh, son, Jonathan. He was in line to be the king. He had the best education. He had the best housing. He had the best food. He had the best clothing. He had the best of everything. He was in line to be the king. And when political disaster struck and they fled, try to find protection for this king's son, he was dropped and was lame on his feet. And time went on and he left and they fled up to a, a very difficult area to live. It was the most barren, most arid, most unproductive area of all of Israel. It would be in the area of Gilead today, it would be in the desert area of what would be today, would be, uh, would be Jordan. And uh, he lived in a place, we, we read in this chapter, chapter 9, he lived in a place called Lodabar. He lived in the house of Macher, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Lodabar means place of no pasture. Dabar means pasture, Lo means a place of no pasture. And here's where he lived. A man who had everything. Now he's in a place where he couldn't graze animals. He could not walk. He could beg. He had nothing. We find somehow he got married and somehow he had a son. A son named Micah. But here is Mephibosheth. One in line to be the king and now has nothing. And he calls himself a dead, a dead dog. But it's interesting, as we come to the first section of this chapter, I like calling the first section of this chapter, God does not forget us. It is interesting, in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel and chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, first of all, Jonathan comes to David and says to David, I know you'll be king one day, but make me a vow, make me a promise that you will not forget my family. And that if you can, you will, show, you will show kindness to our family name that our line would continue, that our line would not be cut off completely. And David makes a vow to Jonathan. And he says, I promise that I will do that. Later on, in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, David goes with his men into a cave where Saul is sleeping. Men all around him. He goes off and cuts off a little bit of his garment takes it out, goes outside of the cave, goes into a high area and calls out to Saul, calls out to his men. And Saul awakes and his men awake and they come out and David holds that piece of garment in his hand. And at that moment, Saul begins to be, become repentant. And he says, David, you're a better man than I am. I have sought you, I've tried to kill you. But then he goes on and says, make me a vow that you will not cut off my line completely. And David promises that he won't do that. You know, I think the first half of this chapter shows us the grace of the Lord Jesus in the sense that he doesn't forget his promises to us. God doesn't forget us. It says he will neither leave us nor forsake us, but I think here we see the grace of the Lord Jesus in doing that. The Lord Jesus honors his promises 
The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It says in, the, in John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own received him not. One of the great acts of grace and kindness is the Lord Jesus doesn't forget his love, doesn't forget his concern, doesn't forget his grace, and he seeks to lift us up. You know, grace seeks out the unworthy. God, grace seeks to give us everything we need in Christ. Grace seems to give us that which we don't deserve. And here in this first chapter we see that's what, that's what David does. Notice with me for a minute, verse 1. David comes and says, I want to show kindness to the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. He later on says, I want to show kindness to the house of Saul for Saul's sake. He remembers his promise. Look with me at verse 3. And the king said, Is there yet any in the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? And the servant says, There's yet one. Down a little bit further, verse 7. When, when Mephibosheth comes, David says to him, Fear not, for I'm going to show you kindness for your father's sake. Three times we have the word kindness. And the word, the Hebrew word for kindness here is the word cheset, which is the same word, sometimes translated grace, over 300 times in the Old Testament, sometimes translated grace, sometimes translated kindness. I love what he says. I'm going to show you the kindness of God. He's going to reach down and touch his life and lift him up and bring him back to the place that he should be. I don't know if you know what this year is. This year is 2013. It's the 200th anniversary of something kind of important. The birth of David Livingston. David Livingston, born 1813, goes to Africa. And we would consider him one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Now, I would wonder if I'd ask you a question. If I asked you, how many people did David Livingston, as a great missionary, how many people did he lead to the Lord in his entire missionary service to God? If you were to say one person, you would be correct. Now, we think that he probably led thousands, but he led one person to the Lord. And that one person he led to the Lord, David Livingston thought he was a backslider and wasn't a true believer at all. This man's name is Sicelli. Sicelli was a chief in Botswana. And today, if you go on a Google search of Sicelli, you'll find he was one of the greatest chieftains and chiefs that ever lived in Botswana. There's pictures, there's biographies, there's everything you want to know about Sicelli, except maybe not much about David Livingston and him. But David Livingston led him to the Lord. He met him when he was wandering in the desert. He, his father, was a chief, and his two brothers, his father's two brothers, killed his father. His two uncles killed his father. He fled for his life. And he fled into the desert, and David Livingston met him there. He was a young man, probably 19 years old. And as he shared his plight, David Livingston shared the gospel with him, and he made a profession of salvation. And he said, what do I do with my life? How, what should I do? My two uncles have killed my father. 
I'm in line to be the chief of this tribe, but if I go back, they will kill me. What should I do? We ask for guidance, ask for direction. David Livingston gave him this advice. He said, send your two uncles a keg of gunpowder. Not the average gift that you would send. But back in those days, gunpowder was very valuable, very important. So he did that. He sent it to his two uncles. His two uncles thought it was cursed, demon-possessed in some way. So they took the gunpowder and they threw it on a fire. They knew what it was, but they were going to take it off the fire very quickly before it exploded. But they wanted to burn off the demons. But they waited too long and the gunpowder exploded and killed both of his uncles. And he came back to the tribe and became the chief of that tribe. He was a tremendous chief. He was a tremendous leader. And David Livingston went back with him. He taught him English. He taught him to read the English Bible. In fact, in his life, he went to Great Britain and had an audience with Queen Victoria. But Sicilia had two problems in his life. One, he was a polygamist. He had five wives. And David Livingston said, if you do not put away four other wives and be married to just one wife, you are not a true believer in Christ. He had another problem as well. He was a rainmaker for the tribe. He would pray to the demons and pray to the spirits that somehow that they would send rain to his tribe and to his people. And David Livingston said, you have to give up your rainmaking as well. You cannot pray to the spirits and be a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was very hard for Sicelli, and he said he couldn't do it. And David Livingston said, if you don't do this, I'm going to leave, and you'll never see me again. Time went on, he waited, and he waited. And finally, uh, Sicelli said, I'll do it. I'll give up rainmaking, and I'll give up my wives. He sent four wives away. My wife asked me, how do you know which one to send away? Wouldn't it be very difficult which one to choose? But he sent four away. But a year later, they found out that one of the ones that he sent away was pregnant. And they knew Sicelli had spent time with her. So David Livingston said to Sicelli, you'll never see me again. 1859, David Livingston left him. I want to read something that he said to David Livingston before he left. Remember, he was one of the greatest Christians, greatest believers in Christ in that part of Africa at that time. A tremendous leader, tremendous influence. He, says, he said to David Livingston, do not give up on me because I shall never give up on Jesus. You and I will stand before him together. It was 1859, and they didn't see each other for the rest of their lives. Never a letter, never a visit, never a time they ever saw each other in this world again. But Sicelli did not give up on the Lord Jesus Christ. He began to have Bible studies. He began to preach to the Botswana people. He began to have what we call prayer circles. He would visit little villages and churches. He would preach and he would teach. And he poured his life into the people of Botswana. It is said through his preaching ministry and through his teaching and his leadership, over 30,000 
people in Botswana came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is said that he did more for Christ than any European missionary that ever came to Africa. And Botswana, and they say that Sicelli was one of the greatest preachers and greatest preachers that ever lived in Botswana. Now, I tell that story. I love that story. You can get this off the Internet. There's many places you can do that today. 200th anniversary of David Livingston. Here is David Livingston leading one person to Christ in his entire ministry, and he gives up on that person, never to visit him, never to see him, never to write to him, never to hear from him the rest of his life. And he becomes one of the greatest chiefs and greatest preachers and greatest evangelists that Africa and Botswana had ever seen. But what I like about this story is that the Lord Jesus Christ never gave up on him. He used him and he honored him. He had his flaws. He went back to polygamy and gave up rainmaking. He had his mistakes and his flaws in his life. But they said no one knew the Bible as well as Sicelli. He never had studied theology, but he knew the Bible inside and out. He studied it for hours every day. He was a tremendous preacher, and God used him in a great way. And I think of this story when I think of Mephibosheth, and I think of our lives. People give up on us. People look at us sometimes and look at individuals and say they'll never amount to anything or they'll never get saved. There's no way that God could ever save that person, reach down to that person's life. And yet we see in Mephibosheth, we see a picture in David of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, who can I show? Who is the lowest person in the, in the household of Saul, the household of Jonathan, that I can show kindness, the kindness of God to them? And they, they say, there's someone who's lame. There's someone who's miserable. There's someone who's poor. There's someone who is eking out a meager existence, someone who's a dead dog. And David says, that's the person I want to show kindness to. We come to the next section of this, of this chapter, and we see that David goes and fetches, it says in King James, fetches Mephibosheth out of Lodabar. A terrible place, a very difficult place, a place of no pasture, a place of hunger, a place of difficulty, a place of no blessing. And David goes all the way. I don't know if David went himself or sent men, but they go all the way to Lodabar to get him. You know, it's an interesting picture of salvation. David goes all the way to where he was. He doesn't have Mephibosheth sent a message and say, come halfway. Why don't you come and see uh, if you're really serious, if you want to really serious in accepting my grace. Let's see if you can do a little bit for this blessing. No, David goes all the way to him. He says, you can't move one muscle or one foot. I don't want you to crawl. I don't want you to make any motions. I don't want you to go any distance. I'm going to come all the way to where you are. And I'm going to fetch you out. I'm going to take you out of that place. Isn't how the Lord Jesus does it in the New Testament? It says in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus came to seek and to save those that were lost. Goes to them, goes to a lost world. And I think that's part of what we should do too, isn't it? Sometimes we, and there's nothing wrong with it, we invite people into the church. We invite them to a Bible study. We invite them to activities. But I think that what we should be doing is going to where they are. Going to a neighbor, 
going to their house, going to someone at work, going to where they are, and reaching down to in their situation and their, their concern. That's what David did. He went to them. In verse 5, it says, And King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emil in Lodabar. I think we have in this second section a picture of the Lord Jesus. It says in 1 John, it says that we did not first love him, but that he first loved us. Isn't that where we have a picture here? Here is, here is Mephibosheth, not knowing what David thought of him at all. And yet all the time, David loved him, cared for him, was going to show kindness to him. And he goes and reaches down and, saved, and saves him. I want to look at two passages for a minute. One is in the book of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And I think it's two beautiful passages that illustrate how the Lord loved us when we didn't love him. Isaiah 53. Notice what it says in verse 3. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. He's rejected by us. He's despised by us. He's acquainted with grief through us. He's despised and we esteemed him not. This is what we thought of the Lord Jesus. This is what Israel thought of the Lord Jesus. A rejected, despised, did not esteem him. They showed him grief, brought him sorrow, Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Although we rejected, despised, brought him sorrow and affliction, yet what does the Lord Jesus do? He's wounded for our sorrows, wounded for our transgressions, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We that despised him. We that rejected him. We that hated him. We that had no interest in him. And he went to the cross and loved us and gave himself for us. Turn with me over to Titus chapter 2. Book of Titus chapter 2. Another picture. We did not first love him, but that he first loved us. Chapter 2. Look at verse 9 for a moment. I'm sorry, not verse 9. I'm sorry, verse, uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3. Look at verse 3 in chapter 3. Verse 3, chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceiving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. Malice means to show no kindness, no interest. And hating one another. But look at the very next verse. We that hated one another, hated each other, hated God, 
serving various lusts, pleasures, living in malice. But verse 4, but after the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy has he saved us. Isn't that an amazing thing? We were those showing hatred and malice and envy and every kind of sin, and yet we find the Lord Jesus loving us and giving himself for us. Turn back with me just for a moment. We have a few minutes left. Back to uh, chapter 9 in 2 Samuel. David comes and he lifts up Mephibosheth. He says to Mephibosheth, I'm going to show you kindness for Saul's sake. All of Saul's lands I'm going to give to you. And Ziba, all of your sons and all of your servants, you'll care for that land, you'll till that land, and you'll cultivate that land. And all the fruit that comes from that land, all the produce, all of it, comes to the house of Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth, you won't be there. You won't be there to enjoy all that food and all that fruit and all that produce and all that comes from your lands. Because, Mephibosheth, you'll be eating at the king's table. You'll be a king's son and eating with me every day, every morning, every afternoon. If they had three meals a day, I don't know how often they ate. But you won't even be there to enjoy all of the produce. But your son will be there. Verse 12. Your son will be there, Micah, and he will be enjoying all the blessings of all of those things. And it was interesting what they said to him. They said to, to uh, Jonathan and Saul, said to David, don't cut off our line. Don't cut off our family name. Don't do that. Do it for my sake. Do it as a promise. Turn to First Chronicles chapter 8. First Chronicles chapter 8. In verse 34, it's very interesting. Saul had four sons. Three of them had no children at all. Jonathan had one son, Mephibosheth, lame on his feet, broken, poor, hungry, living a horrible existence. The promise was to Saul and to Jonathan, don't cut off our line from before us. Make that promise. And that one son is in verse 34. His true name was not Mephibosheth. It was another name. It was called Merib Baal, which means opposer of Baal, fighter against Baal. And he had one son, Micah. But Micah had sons. We read of them in verse 35. Pithon, Melech, Teria, Ahaz. And Ahaz had sons. And his sons begot sons. And Moza, in verse 37, begot sons. And Aziel had six sons. And the sons of Eshek, there was a particular son that was born. And his name was Ulam, the firstborn of Yushish. Now read in verse 40. Here was a dead dog, a nobody. He reached down to his life and through a promise not to cut off his name, it, we read, and the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers. They had many sons and sons' sons and 150. And these were all the sons of Benjamin. At the end of his life, he, which he never saw, 
generation after generation after generation because of the kindness of David. There was great blessing brought to his name. We see, I think, a great picture of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace of David reaching down to a life that didn't deserve it, and we don't deserve it. Mel Trotter didn't deserve it. Mel Trotter later on, Harry Monroe, left that mission. And Mel Trotter became the head of the Pacific Garden Mission. But then there was a mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Say, we need a leader. We need someone who can run this mission. And Mel Trotter went to be the head of that mission in Grand Rapids. It was soon called the Mel Trotter Mission. And after a period of years, he started 68 Mel Trotter missions throughout the northern part of the United States. It is said that he led over 100,000 people to the Lord Jesus Christ. He started children's homes. He started Bible camps. He started orphanages. He started all kinds of different ministries. And the Lord took this man, Mel Trotter, lifted him up. A person who was going to commit suicide who was worthless. And God blessed him and honored him. And God used him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you, re you reach down and lift us up and touch our lives. We didn't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We didn't do anything for it. But you reached down in our lives and transformed our lives and used us. And so, Father, we give you thanks for the way you move in our lives through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.